Today's episode features Michelle Roman, who is an incredible contemporary clarinetist who played with me in the New York Youth Symphony. We start off by going through her musical timeline leading up to finding her place in the music world as a contemporary artist. I then expose myself as a quote-unquote brass hole who shares my beef with the clarinet as we discuss the differences between clarinet and trumpet, and I end up submitting to clarinet's redeeming arc. We then get into it by delving into the difficulties of being female musicians, specifically about how traditional patriarchal expectations that conflict with a performance career affect us, the gendered aspect of getting dress-coded, and how playing in a section as a woman feels like being put in a doubly submissive position. I share from my experience as a female section player on tour about how the gender, age, and power dynamics have been difficult and arguably oppressive at times. We then talk about accessibility as the key to classical music having a bright future, and how contemporary music can drive that change as it is music that is being composed today with the ability to make commentary on the world of today in a progressive and revolutionary manner. We conclude with Michelle sharing about her upcoming projects, including her pursuits in curating concerts and ensemble forming. Hello. Hi. Are you down to um, introduce yourself and say hi? Yeah. Um, so hi, everyone. I'm Michelle Herman. I'm a Croatian-American clarinetist, and I currently live in London. Amazing. Um, how is London treating you overall? It's really great. I feel like um, the weather's been really nice here, especially, which has been really great. I, I was worried when I moved back in August that it, it would be like really gray all the time, but it hasn't been, which is nice. Um, but yeah, everything's really great. Um, I'm a first year master's student at Royal College of Music, which has been really great. And we're based like right across from Royal Albert Hall, which is like such a such a treat to like walk walk into college every day and like see this really historic building. But yeah, every everything's been really great. I really love it here. Do you see yourself staying in London and Europe after your master's or is that like unsure? I'm sure my, my parents won't be super thrilled, but no, they, they're super supportive of it. But yeah, I do see myself staying, especially because I have a really large interest in contemporary music and there's a lot of really new and exciting things happening here. Really? Yeah, in addition to so much really great orchestral and chamber music opportunities, and I feel like even since I've moved and I've only been here a couple of months, I've had access to so many opportunities that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And I feel like there's just so much going on that it feels like the place that I need to be right now. That's really exciting, especially I think like since both of us lived in New York the last four years, like we, it's very easy to get kind of New York centric and being like, this is the center of the universe. And like, this yeah. is where you want to be if you're a classical musician, but there are so many other places. And especially for you, since you've lived in like the New York area your whole life. My whole life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, especially I definitely have a very close inclination with New York. My family lives there and all these sorts of things, but it's, it's really like exciting to get to expand beyond. Yeah. Breaking free, being a, having a little study abroad moment, but also yeah. living abroad moment. It's yeah. Really cool. Yeah. Are you cool with kind of giving us a bit of a timeline, like through your musical journey, like from the be from the beginning through now? Sure. So I started playing clarinet when I was nine. And it's funny. I remember um, the year prior we had like a day where all the kids in 
third grade would come to like the music room and the teacher would show us all the different instruments and we would get to pick like a first choice and a second choice. And I remember when they got to clarinet, I was like, oh, that that's the one. Like I have to play that. And I think I put viola as the second choice, which oh, I God. Yeah. But I was so scared that I wouldn't get it that for like weeks I would like run to the band room and be like, did I get it? Did I get it? And they'd be like, yeah, we think so. Like, don't worry about it. You're, you're going to be fine. And my, my teachers will still remind me of that story because I, mm-hmm. I was so nervous that I wouldn't get to play clarinet. But since then, there's been so much like joy in exploring how to play the instrument. I still remember like the very early days of like learning how to set it up and being so fascinated and all that kind of stuff. So I started taking lessons pretty shortly after that privately, which was a really like formative experience um, and made me even more curious with like how I could keep playing. And I did like a variety of like youth, um, like wind symphonies and orchestras throughout middle school and high school, which was really, really fantastic. And I was, I was so lucky to come from like a public school that also had such a great music program because had I not had access to that, I probably wouldn't be where I am now and, and have had the opportunities that I have now. And it was really between my parents and my teachers and my friends, I've always just had such a supportive environment with wanting to go into music, but I knew really early on that I wanted to be a performer. So throughout high school, I, I actually went to this summer program called USDAN, which is in Wheatley Heights in Long Island, which is where I grew up. And um, I had some friends be like, you should go. It's like a really great camp. There's a really fantastic clarinet teacher there. So I, I like, auditioned and, and I was really lucky. I got like a scholarship to go. And um, the clarinet teacher there was Liam Burke. And I remember from like the first day I met him, I was like, whoa, this is like, like I, I knew I liked playing clarinet, but this was like, hold on, there's like a new treasure chest of stuff that I haven't learned yet. So for this like eight weeks I was there, every day was, I felt so inspired and so curious, like I did when I was a child. And I started taking lessons with him and traveling into Manhattan a lot. And he put me in touch with my teacher who I ended up studying with for undergrad, which was John Manassi. So the two of them really kind of shaped the next four or five years of my life going into like undergrad for me to like really fantastic educators and musicians and now friends, which is really wonderful. And they, they always made me feel like really seen and like I could really do whatever I wanted and, and I could ask questions and I could challenge ideas and that my voice was really present in that space. And I ended up going to Manus for my undergrad, which was again, really great, a really small kind of conservatory environment. And I studied with John there and that was from 2017 to um, 2021. And obviously got a bit cut short because of the pandemic. And, oh gosh, I'm, I'm sure you remember too, those those couple of weeks when kind of everything started yeah. happening. And we were like, I don't really know what's going on. Yeah, And I remember, it was, I think it was March 24th, 2020 was my first online lesson with John. Like we were all kind of home and it was sweet. He like called all the students to make sure we were all doing okay. And I, I was, you know, I lived at home anyway. So being home wasn't 
didn't really phase me. I was like, okay, just home for a bit. And I remember being on this Zoom lesson with John and him being like, you know what, like, let's try something different. And um, for the first time, as a third year student, I started working on etudes with him, even mm-hmm. though like, I, I just had never done them before. And, and it didn't feel like a really stressful thing. Whereas like in previous experiences doing something, I guess that fundamental and technical within the classical playing had felt kind of like intimidating and, and not comfortable for me. So it was a really nice, experience that kind of guided me through those next couple of months um, into then exploring more of what I do now, which is more um, contemporary music and improvisation. So throughout the pandemic, you know, I was kind of like working a bit um, in retail and also just like doing lots of practice and stuff. And I, I did some like online kind of workshops and seminars and stuff. And one that kind of really pivoted me a little bit more was this festival called One Two One Wins, um, run by Nick Fantinos, who's a really fantastic cellist. Um, he used to be an Eighth Blackbird. It was a one-week intensive. This was uh, like end of October in 2020, and it was a one-week intensive. Um, one composer was paired with one wind player, and there are like some great people on faculty, and we had um, like a week to learn and perform a new piece that was written directly for us. Wow. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. And I performed and I performed another piece on that program, which was Jörg Wiedemann's uh, Fantasy for Solo Clarinet. Because I was um, in the midst of like applying for grad school and I was like, oh, this is part of the next steps for me. I'm also going to learn this because like that is part of the the repertoire requirements. And I remember even just learning that piece, I, I felt something different that I had felt to rather than when I was learning my other repertoire and I noticed that but I didn't know exactly what it was so when I did this kind of one week intensive program and we were talking more about new music and its accessibility and even things like fundraising and putting on concerts something kind of awoken within me and I was like hold on this is a little bit more of what I want to do so I was still like applying for my master's programs but I I, I was like, okay, there's there's something there's something here with this because I kind of grew up thinking that oh, I was like going to just be an orchestral player, but I didn't really feel like that was the sole thing I wanted to do because I I feel like my mind operates in a way of having multiple creative outlets. Yeah. So so when you know I you know a couple months later I kind of had all my like decisions and I decided to go to RCM and I you know, I was kind of like making some big transitions in my life. And I did two other programs that felt like this past year, um, which was the Fresh Ink Festival with the Fifth Half Ensemble and the International Contemporary Ensembles, Ensemble Evolution, um, which are two programs I just highly recommend to everyone. And I got to spend a lot of my time like remotely in the past summer um, working with fellow musicians, some people I knew already through like online programs, which was really cool. And we kind of did the, the standard thing of like recording some pieces and doing some workshops and all that stuff. But it was more in stuff that was being written today and some other contemporary works I wanted to explore. And one of my friends, um, Lauren McCall, she had like a solo piece for clarinet and electronics. And on a whim, I was like, oh, I'll, I'll play it. Like, she was doing the festival with me. And I was like, 
I was like, this is the best thing ever. I was having the time of my life. And I, I remember like recording it in my living room and learning it didn't feel stressful. And, and it just felt so natural. So since then, and since moving here and um, kind of diving into more of this stuff, I definitely define more as a, like a contemporary clarinetist. And I definitely do still loads of um, chamber and orchestral music that's more classical based. And I still like freelance with like orchestras and stuff, but more of the stuff that I want to be doing has to do with like contemporary and experimental music, which kind of takes me to now. Wow. Thank you so, so much for guiding us through all of that. I definitely want to circle back to the present and delve into all of your projects and your identity as a contemporary artist, but I do want to stay in the past for a bit more. Um, as you know, we've had conversations about this, and I'm going to come across as such an asshole for this part right now, but <laughs> you <laughs> you know I'm not like the biggest clarinet person, um, as I publicly come out as a hater right now, but please, please prove me wrong. Yeah, so I guess first question is why the clarinet? Why were you so drawn to it? And why are you still so drawn to it? I think one, it was, if I'm thinking back to when I was like eight, one was like the appearance. There was just something about it that I feel like has resonated with me. And it's going to sound kind of weird, but I have this experience when I'm like putting my instrument together and you can like hear the like pieces like joining together with the corks. And then it's like a very specific like, set of sounds but it's something that like I'm like okay like I, I almost like feel at home it's like very meditative which is it's weird but I've, I've felt that way since the beginning and then I didn't really grow up listening to like clarinet music or anything like that but I felt like when I heard it and then I started learning more about it and then I would try things out myself and then I heard more pieces that were like for clarinet or for clarinet and piano or um gosh like a great example is like the, like the Brahms quintet for clarinet string quartet I was like oh this is this is amazing and then when I started doing more stuff like orchestra I I thought it was like the coolest thing ever and then now I do a lot more um bass clarinet as well and that's a whole other thing I think it's a really underrated instrument and I think it's like almost like a bit more like up and coming which is really great and there's so many great like orchestral solos and there's like a lot of great like contemporary music that uses both if clarinet gets such a bad rap i actually i was a hater on normal clarinet but i always kind of like felt bad for my bass clarinet friends because yeah i don't know i feel like in band in like public school at least it's like everyone wants to play like the same like three instruments but the band director needs like a full ensemble so they just start pushing people and know, often it's, it's really it's really sad in some ways because then it, they, they go like okay you like you're gonna play bass clarinet or like for me actually in seventh grade I had to fill in as like a baritone saxophone because the the band the year above me didn't have anyone and they needed uh. to do it for the competition so they had me do it because I was doing it in jazz band already and I was like this is fine but like I'm not really enjoying it Mm -hmm. but then so then that kind of like takes the joy out of it a little. it's like these early decisions that band directors aren't really thinking about the yeah. consequences and, of and kind of pushing really formative to how like what their relationship to music continues to be right so okay so there's that 
I also, we've talked about like how I think one of the drawbacks of clarinet, and this is where I think it really differs from trumpet. One of the things that I think was interesting to think about is like trumpet is such a high barrier to entry. Like when I started playing, it took me a month to make a sound. Like nothing came out for a month um, when I started in fifth grade. But clarinet, you can kind of just like start squawking away. Yeah. yeah. And then I think like trumpet's a really interesting climb because you're awful forever and ever and ever. And then you're like decent. And then you become really good a couple thousand hours later. And then being like incredible is, of course, like banging your head against the wall for like years and years and years to just like develop sound production. But it's interesting because at least from the outside, it seems like clarinet has a different kind of trajectory where it's like you make a sound right away. You're kind of like mediocre squawking around a little bit. And then you can become pretty good, but then like making that big jump to like breathtaking clarinet, which definitely like exists, is one that seems nearly impossible. Or like I've known a lot of like really competent clarinet players, but being competent and being like magical, like hair raising, it seems really rare. For us, because we we don't have to like make our own reads. That kind of makes makes things like easier in a way so we don't have to worry about that but but there's also like misconceptions like it's not just like a singular sound you can make just because you have one read like you're able to make so many sorts of adjustments either with like the speed of your air or um the position of the read or like anything and you're able to like create so many different sounds which especially since i've studied with john and now since I've been here I've been exploring more which is it's really rewarding to get to explore that um I I think that's the case with most instruments though that there are these like intricacies that we will never fully know about but it takes so much time and then like curiosity to want to explore and see like what you can do and how you can like push that boundary a little bit Mm -hmm. And also just like sound production and development looks so different instrument to instrument. Like, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And I guess kind of to end this clarinet spiel of me being a hater, I will say that I think you are a phenomenal player. And I was like, wowed when we played Scheherazade at Carnegie, because that part, it was so long ago, but like that part is so virtuosic and like acrobatic and trumpet could never, like we could never do anything close to that it's definitely just like spitting notes for days and it was yeah it was definitely like incredible writing for the clarinet and you did it beautifully Thank you. Um, credit where credit is due for the clarinet um yeah. <laughs> but it's such a different animal this conversation will change your mind a bit about the clarinet for the future yeah so i guess kind of taking a bit of a turn have you had any big moments of self-doubt along the way and if you has any of that been like gendered um i'm not super well versed in like the wind's dynamics as i've said but i do notice like at the student level there's a pretty good gender split especially compared to trumpet and also at the student level of trumpet there's a much better gender split before you go pro um oh, absolutely yeah but i know the second you look at professional symphonies it's a really male dominated split for clarinet as well so like how do you kind of deal with that and yeah, have you ever had any big moments of doubt? Sure. So I think that, especially when I was auditioning for undergrad, I had more self-doubt because I remember some of my teachers saying, oh, like, you know, 
making it as a performer is tough. And I was like, oh, yeah, I know. Like, but they, they were like, no, I don't think you know. And that kind of, that scared me for a long time. And, you know, I think also for my parents, it was very hard for them to see me wanting to go into performance. And I, I, I think now even more I see why that's difficult. But it definitely going into undergrad, I then felt scared. And I felt more shy about my playing. And, like, I had to hide a little bit. And it didn't really feel gendered in any way at that point. But... I think in like recent years, like a great example, I did a gig like two weeks ago and we were, it was for an orchestra for this like foundation and I was sitting there for a second. I was on principal clarinet and I, I, I looked around and I went, oh, this is the first time I've played in an orchestra where all four of the wind principals have been women. And I, I and then I thought I shouldn't be sure, so shocked by that. That should be happening more often um so i think definitely when i when i think in terms of like orchestral playing and moving forward in that way it's still like extremely difficult and i think these institutions are definitely making so many strides towards more equity within the field but i think there's still a really long way to go but i i do i have sometimes felt um, like I did, I did remember doing an audition a couple of years ago. It was actually right before the pandemic. And I remember sitting and I was, I think maybe one of like three or four women um, in a sea of kind of men auditioning for this job. And none of the women ended up advancing. There was maybe like eight or eight or 10 people that advanced. It was for like a basic job. And they, they ended up hiring no one anyway, mm. which was, I think the best thing at all. But then like thinking about it it was like is there something like female about the way we sound like I don't I don't know and then now when I've been thinking about kind of just like what it means to be a woman and like what we're told inherently as women and then like how that can inform music making has been like really interesting it's still weird there, there definitely is progress especially as like a female wind player but sometimes I definitely still feel it that like oh I'm a female musician I'm not a musician so I'm like Mm. that bit is at the forefront and like if there was more equity with if there was equity within the sector we would all be musicians you know what I mean Mm -hmm. and I think it's really interesting too what you were talking about like that fear factor kind of going into college because I got a lot of that as well and I don't think that was like pointed at me because I'm a woman but I think those words um, just in the way that we're kind of like encultured and socialized as women I feel like I don't know I think those words kind of carry farther with women they're like this is going to be a very like unstable lifestyle and it's not going to be easy and if like one day in 10 20 years you want a family like you're going to be working at night and yeah. you're going to be able yeah, to support that's people. Been a big thing of it too. It's, it's definitely the conversation of like, oh, if you want kids and that's fine. Like, but I don't really hear people saying that to men. Right. Um, that's the difference. And, and also with things like, I don't really feel, I guess, comfortable if I like raise my hand and have a question in like an orchestral rehearsal. Like sometimes, sometimes I'll do it, but sometimes I feel a little bit nervous too because I don't want to seem too outspoken. But I don't think I've ever seen 
a man or anyone have that same sort of fear. And I, maybe that is because of the whole gender politics thing. I'm not entirely sure, but I know at least for me and what I've learned about like going into the orchestral field, I, um, you know, you try to ask as little questions as possible, but actually I remember, um, a couple of years ago, I, I did a, a summer course and it was like a week long, like orchestra intensive. And the, the, we had like an orchestral etiquette workshop over Zoom, and it was a woman telling us that women dress too provocatively, and like you can't wear things that expose shoulders because you'll be a distraction in the rehearsal, and you always have to dress respectfully and act respectfully. Um, and I remember like feeling almost sick to my stomach. I was like, sorry, mm -hmm. it was, I think it was 2020 at the time. I was like. Am I actually sitting and, and witnessing this? So I remember asking like a question. It was, they had like a, it was like the webinar feature. So you could just like submit questions and it wasn't that like your name didn't show up. And I, and I said like, why is a woman wearing a sleeveless top of distraction during in like a rehearsal? And she saved it for the end on purpose and said like, this person should know that this kind of stuff isn't tolerable within a work environment. And um, how limiting that is in so many ways. Like, I'm sorry, I, I didn't realize that the clothing I wear determines how I'm going to play this solo in Petrushka or anything like that. And it was, it was so infuriating because nothing during that workshop was targeted towards any of the men or towards how they would appear in any like way, shape or form. Right. Also, like, have you heard of Yuja Wong, like the biggest badass in all of classical music who wears like, she wears like mini dresses and has a pixie cut and is a total badass. Well, yeah, like, like yeah. I've been dress coded so many times. Like this is a recurring theme. Um, before even stepping out on Carnegie's stage, like our executive director pulls me aside and is like, no, like there's a sheer part on like your sleeve on your shirt, like you need a cardigan. Yeah. Um, or like those leggings aren't like opaque enough or whatever. Like this has happened so many times in high school too. And I'm like, this definitely feels gendered and I'm not trying to like be provocative right now. I'm just, trying, just trying to, to be comfortable. comfortable and confident and all yeah. these things. I'm like, I felt so much more uncomfortable once I had like a really scratchy warm wool cardigan on that like yeah, made my outfit look really like stupid. Pointing out to you like oh this doesn't fit like you're the one making everyone uncomfortable and you're like oh but I was just being comfortable I didn't realize anyone noticed. Yeah yeah and like two minutes before you go on stage and they're like play in front of a couple thousand people and you're just kind of like out of it and the last thing I was just going to say on this is like also the role of being in a section as a woman has been really interesting. Like I'm playing trumpet two on tour and I was so used to playing principal and trumpet one and lead trumpet that I still felt really powerful and there were still gender dynamics. I'm almost always playing with men, but when you're kind of like in charge and have that like primary role, that's mostly fine. Like people are always going to challenge you and whatever, but at the end of the day, you're still the one playing the solos and you're the one playing yeah. the high notes and whatever and leading. But now that there's like gender dynamics, um, age dynamics, I'm the youngest in the pit by a lot. Going back to gender dynamics, I'm one of two women in the pit. There are 10 of us and it's considered a diverse pit and it's only 20% women. 
So think about that. And then also the power dynamics of like those two things, plus being in the section, I feel like very put in my place. And I've never felt more like a female trumpet player before because you're just like, it's a position where you're just expected to be submissive to begin with. And when I was given advice um, going into this tour, they're like, yeah, like never speak up basically. Yeah. And I'm like, I hate that. Cause I think I always counteracted um, and challenged like these gender roles and stuff. I was always like super loud and fiery and outspoken. And in New York Youth Symphony, like Mike was so chill and was like, oh my God, like always just like speak up and ask questions and do all these things. And it was like such a great safe space, I think for everyone. And yeah, I think going into like your first professional gig and everyone's like, do not talk and like, don't warm up loudly, like basically like take up as little space as possible. And I don't, and this also was all advice for men. And I don't think they understand that's just like a norm for being a section player, like how that conflated with being a woman is really tricky and like hard to hear. Yeah, absolutely. Shifting again, do you have any opinions or ideas about where you think the future of classical music is going, especially I guess as a contemporary artist now? I feel like I could talk for days on this. Um, I think that institutions like orchestras need to continue doing the work they're doing in like especially expanding the repertoire that they're playing and continuing to commission new works and play more works by living composers. I feel like we're seeing more initiatives in that direction but I think that's kind of where things need to head again. I don't think it's acceptable to just play a program of like old dead white men. Mm -hmm. I think I think everyone kind of gets that at this point. But I would really like to see even more like thoughtful programming, like thinking about how pieces fit together and the kinds of like the storytelling you can do through that sort of thing. Those have been the concerts that have like really grasped me the most is when someone has thought about like why we're playing these pieces and why they go together. I think also the pandemic realized that even more people have been excluded to classical music. So they don't have the opportunities to attend concerts for a variety of reasons. So things like digital platforms were really helpful. And obviously now we're, we're almost like moving away from it a little bit because everyone misses the in-person experience, but there needs to be some sort of balance for having both of those and moving towards like more inclusive and accessible ways of accessing classical music, whether that be through just uh, like discounted ticket programs or venues that are more easy to get to because mm -hmm. you know even things like I mean, Royal Albert Hall is an example like maybe not everyone can get to Royal Albert Hall it could be really out of the way for them so having things that are a bit more localized would open up that space a little bit more yeah I I would like to be one of the people pushing for even more of those changes within the industry hopefully <laughs> Yeah, no, that's all so good. And I guess speaking of accessibility to music, I think this leads well to like my next question of, I'm trying to make it kind of a recurring theme to like talk about um, or have 
each guest kind of breaks something down that's musical, um, whether it's an actual piece or kind of a project they're working on um, or a musical concept and kind of break it down to musicians and non-musicians to try to make classical music kind of demystified. So if you'd be down to do that, that'd be really great. Yeah, sure. I will talk fast, but I have two examples that I think are really great. So um, during 2021, I had a year-long solo project called Calendar, which a K, Kalendar in Croatian. And it was a collaboration with Michael Spiroff, who's a Macedonian Canadian composer, and myself. And he wrote and I performed 12 miniatures based on the 12 months in the Slavic calendar. We went to undergrad together and had worked together and I had asked him to write me a piece which turned into this because we were both really curious about um, having like a parent that emigrated from a different part of the world and having like a Balkan identity. So like my definition as a Croatian American clarinetist is a big part of what I do. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to find a way of accessing my own heritage through performance. So creating something new while exploring the idea of what each of those specific months mean, meant or, and continues to mean was a really significant thing. So something like uh, February means, it translates literally to um, the month in which the days grow longer, mm. which is really like poetic and beautiful. And a lot of the translations for the months are um, relate back to like ag agricultural and like weather patterns throughout Croatia and throughout kind of the Balkan area of the world. So putting the, those out um, every month, like on my Instagram and on my website was really great. And we turned it into two EPs that are available on Bandcamp. Um, and it was, it, was a, it was a new thing for me to kind of push myself as a solo player, but then to be working on something because they were miniatures, they were about like a minute or two each and to share this like small chunk of like something that I worked on and something that Michael's worked on as well and also speak about like what this month means literally and then what it means to us was a really helpful experience in thinking about how I communicate about music to like larger audiences. The yeah. second example I have is um, I curated a concert at RCM recently um, called Fostering Community, and it was part of their Catalyst concert series. Um, it's a new initiative for students to put forward works by like underrepresented and underperformed um, composers. And they wanted us to explore issues of social justice or heritage or anything like that. And I um, chose two pieces based on migration and one piece was Babylon on Our Own by Alexandra Vrebalov, who's a Serbian composer who now lives in Brooklyn. And two suitcases by Mary Kubjian, who um, is an Armenian-American composer. And her um, the piece itself is extremely haunting and really relevant to everything that's going on with Ukraine right now. But it tells the story of um, her parents' um, traveling with like two suitcases and their infant child from Lebanon to the United States. And um, there's like spoken text in the background in Armenian and in Arabic and in English that tells the story. Um, and basically like the process of, of 
uh, applying to do this concert and thinking about, okay, why do I want to put these two works together? And putting that into words was one really like transformative experience. And then getting the people together and rehearsing it and talking about the music with them was another really transformative experience. Then combining, we used electronics for both pieces. So that was a, a, a whole other thing because not everyone has worked with electronics before. And then the final element was like the, the marketing of the concert and then the speaking to the audience about it. And later on, like having like discussions with audience members about the nature of the pieces and everything like that. The, the entire process of doing this like completely opened my eyes up to how music and art are extremely political in a lot of ways. And we need to be able to have these conversations through concerts and more events like this need to be happening. And we need to like, as corny as it is, have further dialogue around music, like both like literal communication and even just like musical language and connecting with the audience, I think is really important. And something I thought that was really great also was um, for Mary's piece, we I included the text that we had on like a screen in the background and in the program. And some audience members said that that was really helpful for them to have the visual element as, as well, to um, be able to see it on the screen and then have that as part of the performance. So it's really thinking about little things like that can really change someone's entire perception of a concert. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. I think it's amazing, I think, for us to kind of realize that music and the world and everything is like so much bigger than clarinet and trumpet and yeah. it sounds like you're doing that like you're i think it's so important for us to not just kind of be sheep that are being herded and they're like oh like great we have a trumpet player just like show up and we're gonna put something on the stand written by someone some dead white guy from 300 years ago and you're just gonna read it down and great um it feels like very transactional in a way yeah. but it also what you're kind of describing is like classical music is still growing and it's alive and there's so much more creating that can happen and that should happen that is happening so it's just amazing also that you're not just assuming the role of orchestral clarinetist anymore who just kind of shows up you're like i'm gonna take charge and put on a concert and program and yeah like all those steps that seems like so all-encompassing and i'm sure there's like so much learning that comes out of that and it definitely seems like there were some light bulb moments of like oh, like, this is so much bigger than me just playing the clarinet part. Yeah, exactly. So there, there were so many levels of, like, one, the ensembles that were, like, involved with that um, already have so much music written for them. The, the One of the main groups we had was, it was a piero ensemble, so flute, clarinet, violoncello, piano, um, with percussion. And that group already has so much music written for it, so that is, like, one thing that already could be doing and it was one of the first experiences that once we bonded over, bonded over this really intense emotional piece and we were all like friends beforehand but we never all worked together and it was one of those experiences that i was like wow this is like real what people would describe as chamber music it was so collaborative and we were really just having conversations about everything and anything and now 
I feel like I'm, I'm like a pseudo like artistic director because now we're starting to form more as like a proper ensemble. We're doing some stuff in June and going forward. And even just thinking about that there is so much music that is so overtly clear in speaking about um, gender or politics or race or anything like that. There's also music that's not as overtly clear, but it's still, and we need to be having these conversations and, and playing this sort of music and like talking about the steps of how we're here and how mm -hmm. we've like gotten to this point. Yeah, that's, I think that's amazing. And I think it's like so important in the pursuit of pushing classical music forward that there are more creators like us um, and more creators of all creeds. Yeah, that's how we're going to change, like the way to kind of change the history is to just like keep adding stuff to it and keep like writing that narrative. That's kind of a cool pitch to people who don't know much about contemporary music or maybe classical musicians who are like, I like romantic music and that's it. I think kind of pitching it as this like new revolutionary, inclusive, still evolving art form is a really cool way to pitch it. You're like, okay, like, first of all, contemporary music doesn't mean that it's like atonal and hard to listen to. And sometimes it is atonal, but it's just music that's happening right now and is like telling the stories of right now being written by people who are alive and um yeah, I, especially like being a contemporary musician i think it's hard because there are a lot of the same issues within the classical world that you know the concerts can be inaccessible because maybe sometimes there's not a lot of knowledge about the composers or there's this like preconceived idea that all contemporary music is very technically difficult and all of these sorts of things, but that's not that's not what it means. But we need to be making an active effort to like break down those barriers and break down that wall. So I for me, like being a new person in a completely new country and also be curating this concert um, of but kind of back to what we were talking about, like being a woman curating this concert of pieces by two women felt like a really big thing mm -hmm. and at the same time i thought well no this is what should be happening more often it, it felt like there there i there was so much work that went into it and there is still so much work going into continuing this process but at the same time i was like well that was simple in a lot of ways like it just it just made makes sense and it's what i want to see continuing happening and we are seeing it Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's great. Well, thank you so much for your time. I have one question left. Um, I guess I just wanted to plug any things that you're working on right now. I know we were talking before we started recording about the ensemble that you're kind of putting together and just like any long term goals would be awesome. Sure. So, um, yeah, we're, we're in early stages of ensemble forming. Um, I've been selected to curate another concert at RCM as part of Festive All, which is um, a like chamber and orchestral kind of festivals uh, celebrating diverse and underrepresented composers. So we will be doing a program featuring works by um, Julia Wolf, Vijay Iyer, Inti Figures, Vizueta, um, we're going to do Mary Jean's piece again, because um, not a lot of people got to hear it. And I'm actually writing a piece for it, which is really wow. exciting. Um, what else am I working on? I have a 
commissioning project that's very in, in some early stages that I'll be announcing soon. Tristan works with clarinet and electronics. Um, I've commissioned three composers so far, and there are works that deal with like personal identity and self, sense of self. And uh, I'm working with each of these composers uh, to just like collaborate on our own kind of ideas of like what it means to be human and what it means to come from somewhere because there's there's a lot of different personalities which is really great but I want to not only like be creating music that like like expanding the fields for something like clarinet and electronics because I think there's so much work to be done in terms of making it even more accessible but I think also um, actively creating works that like deal with like human emotion and that sort of stuff is really exciting um, and yeah it's I'm really really thrilled and I will also be at um, Bang on a Can this summer as a fellow which is really really exciting um, so I'll be there for most of July in Massachusetts. It's really exciting to see you kind of take on like roles of leadership and creation and like curation and still crushing it at the clarinet but just like blossoming into this like well-rounded musician in person like in that industry and yeah. yeah it's amazing to see and i also can't wait to hang out in a couple of weeks yeah, little, reunion, little reunion in london town so it's gonna be great yeah. but yeah i just wanted to thank you so so much and love you and adore you and we'll see each other very very soon yeah.